Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. It feels like on an almost weekly basis, we hear about the Red Bull, about the Tory gains, Labour woes. But what about the rest of the country? And in particular, if the North is going blue, could the South go red? To help us with that, we're delighted to have David Gork, former Cabinet Minister and MP for South West Hertfordshire on the podcast. So, David, welcome. Please introduce yourself and perhaps let us know what you've been up to since leaving Parliament. Well, thanks very much, uh, Martin. Great pleasure to be with you. Um, So, no, I left uh, Parliament in December 2019. And uh, since then, my, my, uh, my day job has been Head of Public Policy at McFarland's. Uh, a London law firm where I worked before I entered Parliament in 2005. Um, But I'm also writing bits and pieces, uh, quite a lot for Conservative Home, and more recently for the New Statesman. So that's keeping me um, uh, busy as well. So that's that's really what life has been like for under lockdown in a post-political life. Just before we get going, would you mind just telling us about your... um how you came to no longer be an MP, uh, why you left Parliament, and your sort of status within the Conservative Party. So are you still a member of the Conservative Party, for example? Okay, well, I mean, my my story, if you like, is I I was a member of uh, Theresa May's cabinet. I was uh, latterly Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor. of course, in the last few months of her uh, premiership, the big issue was about Brexit and in particular whether we were heading towards a no-deal Brexit. My view that was that that would have been a disaster for the British people had that happened. Uh, and within Cabinet, I had a reasonably prominent position as one of those advocates against a no-deal Brexit, uh, trying to reach a deal. Um, when it came to the change of leadership after Theresa resigned and uh, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, it was clear to me, and he had been, to be fair, very clear as to what his policy was going to be, which was to, 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 to leave on the 31st of October, come hell or high water. And if that meant no, a no-deal Brexit, then so be it. Uh, it was pretty clear to me that I wasn't going to be able to Uh, be a member of that government and so I resigned on Theresa's last day in office and then when uh, Parliament came back in September uh, I was one of those that was uh, involved in supporting the Ben Burt amendment uh, which essentially gave Parliament the ability to stop us leaving without a deal uh, on the 31st of October and in supporting that uh, I had the whip withdrawn from me it was the first time I'd rebelled against the Conservative whip in my 14 years or so in Parliament but I had the whip withdrawn um, straight away um, unlike some others I didn't have it restored to me uh, and then when we entered into uh, general election I was, I was still an independent 
member of parliament. Uh, and I concluded that I would go down fighting and I would run as an independent. And so I resigned my membership of the Conservative Party. I haven't subsequently taken it up. I ran as an independent in southwest Hertfordshire. I got 16,000 votes, but that was still many thousands of votes short of what I needed. Uh, so I uh, was defeated uh, in December 2019. Uh, and I continue to be an independent, if you like. I'm um, a floating voter, not a member of a political party. Uh, and uh, I follow politics um, with a degree of independence that I didn't have for many years. Thanks. And so since you've been out of politics, or at least out of Parliament, what are your reflections on the last couple of years? Well, I think we're we're living through um, a fascinating period in, in politics, because I think what we are seeing is a realignment uh, similar realignments have occurred in other countries as well, but politics is moving away from the divide, if you like, on uh, which was based on uh, economic security, if you like, uh, based on economic class. Uh, it's it's been moving away from that for some time, but that process has accelerated with Brexit. Um, it is much more now about uh, cultural values. Um, it is much more about educational background uh, and uh, what the Conservative Party has done very successfully is essentially embrace that change in voting pattern, has attracted a, a new uh, electorate um, that it puts it in a very strong position. That, that electorate is, is quite nicely distributed around the country to ensure that the Conservatives win lots of seats, not necessarily with vast majorities, but they can win lots of seats. Um, and um, the Conservative position is, is, is very strong by appealing to that, that, if you like, Brexit voting part of the population. But Brexit, I think, symbolises a whole range of values. Um, and uh, as I say, it's, it's, it's better distributed. And of course, the, 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 the other part of the country that vote is split. It, it's, it's split between Labour, Liberal Democrats, Greens. Um, in Scotland and Wales, you've got the Nationalist voters as as well. Um, so for the moment, uh, the Conservative Party is, is, is well-placed to win elections. Um, my worry and the reason why I, I got off the bus, if you like, the way at the point I did, is that I'm not sure that that is necessarily conducive to good government and uh, the benefit of the country. Um, and that's why, um, even though I could see it was potentially a very successful strategy that Boris Johnson was going to pursue, it was not one I felt able, like, able to support. So we asked a couple of others, Norman Lamb, Caroline Flint, about how their parties had failed to find a compromise around Brexit. Given your involvement from the Conservative side as part of the so-called Gawkward Squad. What are your reflections? Well, I, I was in the position of, of supporting a compromise, which was the, the Theresa May deal, a, a, a deal that I think um, you know, recognised some of the real problems with Brexit and tried to address them. Uh, and, and what was striking at the time, if you, you know, if you looked at your constituency correspondence, you either had people saying this isn't proper Brexit, this is a sellout of the Brexit referendum result, or you had people saying this is a much worse outcome than staying in the European Union and we should do that. Now, I, I, I had some sympathy for the latter view, 
but uh, you know, we'd had a referendum and, and, and trying to find a way of respecting that seemed to me the right way forward. The problem was that because things got so polarised, is, is, is essentially we were left with a binary choice, it seemed to me, either a very hard Brexit or alternatively saying to the British people, well, look, are we sure that this is what we want and, and, and let's have another referendum? And, and, and given the choice between the two, I was, I was very much in favour of a, of a referendum and trying to stay in. Um, but there was just an unwillingness, I think, from both sides to go for you know, people's second choice. Um, and and you know, Parliament had a majority against everything. Um, but didn't have a majority for anything that caused huge amounts of exasperation, which meant that the get Brexit done message resonated. Do you uh, think that's a sort of failure of our politics that the sort of only compromise on offer was defeated so resoundingly when, as you say, everyone, or, you know, every sort of possible alternative had a majority against it and yet the the compromise on offer was um was so unpopular in parliament yeah i mean i think it was a failure and i do think you know i I, uh, certainly at the time my my view was you know it was frustrating that labor mps who had professed a willingness to accept the referendum result then couldn't when it came down to it but you know, part of it was the tension between a referendum and representative democracy because it's also the case that you know, I think any you know, most members of parliament did think that this was this was a, a worse outcome than than, than staying in um, just on its own terms uh, and so that tension between referendums and, and parliamentary democracy is a difficult one um, but uh, yeah, like, I, I think um, you know, in, in truth, the referendum result left the, the country in a mess. Uh, and I have to you know, hold my hands up as someone who supported a referendum uh, on membership of the European Union, in truth, with the expectation that we would vote to remain. Um, but having found ourselves in this position, there wasn't enough. Uh, willingness to compromise to, to to find a way through, and and, and that was that was frustrating, as, and has left us in the position that we have um, with Boris Johnson as prime minister and uh, a very hard Brexit. And you you might, uh, might have sort of already answered this, at least uh, sort of implicitly. But how well then does this current Conservative government reflect your views? I was going to say as a Conservative, as an ex-Conservative. Well, I, I still sort of consider myself to be a Conservative, just not a supporter of the Conservative Party. Um, and I, I think that this this is a pretty big departure. And I think it's, in a way, I, I, I made reference to the New Statesman piece, which was published recently about, about if you like, the ruthlessness of the Conservative Party. It does exist to hold power. Um, it saw a way in which it could hold power by appealing to a new electorate, I think at the sacrifice of good government. And um, you know, the situation is now that, that you know, this current Conservative government, I don't think is as focused on you know, building a strong economy in the way that I would like it to, 
I don't think it is um, recognizes the, the 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 role that we should play in the world more widely. Um, I, I think although its rhetoric is about free trade, it is putting up trade barriers. Uh, I, I think there's a lack of respect for the rule of law on occasions, which I find rather depressing. And I think there's um, and 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 to some extent, I think that there's there's not the sort of values of um, you know obtaining value for money for the taxpayer that uh, all the time that I would I would like. So so I think it's it's um, it is a it is a departure, but it is driven by a political opportunity, the ability to appeal to a different set of voters who have traditionally not voted conservative, who maybe don't share conservative instincts on the economy, um, economically perhaps quite left-wing, but on social and cultural issues, one could describe as being more right-wing. Um, that's probably reflecting you know, public opinion quite neatly. I just don't think that that results in, in, in good government. One way that I'd thought about this that you sort of touched on a bit, but and you've mentioned in terms of good governance, but so you pre you've criticised the the way that our sort of political system left us with the choice between Johnson and Corbyn to be prime minister, but for all polling and in fact the the actual results of votes seems to indicate the voters are pretty happy with Johnson, so. Is it that you're wrong about Johnson and the sort of Conservative Party, given that public seem to be fairly happy with the, the choice that they made to give him pretty healthy majority of 80 seats? Yeah, my, my criticism of, um, of, of the choice of Boris Johnson for leader of the Conservative Party is not based on, on if you like, his popularity. I mean, he clearly is popular, uh, I mean, at the moment, he has got the benefit of the of the vaccine bounce, um, and, and that won't last forever. But he clearly, you know, does appeal to large elements of the electors. My my criticism is is really that I don't think he is well equipped to be a, a good prime minister. Um, and and just because lots of other people think that he is doesn't doesn't make it so. Um, so I, I'm not. You know, arguing that this is a, a the path the Conservative Party is taking is electorally disastrous. Um, evidently, it's not at least not in the not in the short to medium term. I, I just don't think it is conducive to delivering you know, good and effective government that will result us being a you know, prosperous and harmonious society. So um, that that's my that's that's my difficulty. I mean, you, you could argue he's giving the public what they want, good and hard. So to move us on a bit, I think, into the key topics we want to get into, um, we want to talk about the politics of the south of England in particular, uh, and specifically the, the sort of so-called blue wall. Um, and David, you wrote an intriguing article in the New Statesman about how Labour could potentially make inroads there. Um, and we're going to get on to those specifically. Um, but I wondered if we could start off by just characterising the politics of the South, because we don't talk enough about the politics of England or bits of England. We seem to t- treat it as one kind of whole. Um, so as a former MP for South West Hertfordshire, um, what would you say distinguishes the politics of the South of England? Does it have any particular characteristics that stand out for you? 
Well, I think it's important not to not to overly generalise because even in a constituency like South West Hertfordshire, the politics in, say, Berkhamstead, which is a very prosperous, affluent, uh, highly educated commuter town, versus the politics of South Oxy, which is a sort of ex-London you know, post-war overspill estate, um, very, very different. Uh, and and so one one has to be a little bit careful there. But I think the point that I was driving at is that just in the same way that the Conservative Party um, is able to appeal to people on, on, on cultural grounds that previously voted Labour, there's a group of, of voters, predominantly in the southeast of England, in, 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 in London, but in the home counties, that have generally traditionally voted Conservative, perhaps on economic grounds. They've, they trust the Conservative Party on the economy. Um, they're generally fairly prosperous, high, you know, uh, paying quite a lot in tax. Um, those voters who are you know, also socially liberal, highly educated, suspicious of, of, of nationalism, um, pretty tolerant, uh, and voted very heavily to remain in 2016, th- those voters, I don't think, feel terribly comfortable with where Boris Johnson has taken the Conservative Party. Uh, now, many of them still voted for the Conservative Party in 2019 because they really did not want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister for all sorts of reasons. But those voters, and, and, and this, is a, this is a section of society that is only likely to grow as more people go to university and so on, that, that group I don't think is that comfortable with where the Conservative Party is at at the moment. Um, and at some point or other, there will be an opportunity for other parties to to win over those those, those voters and win over those seats. The, the, you know, the, and we're already seeing you know, Southwest London, for example, increasingly uh, Liberal Democrat, you know, moving into Isham Walton, where Dominic Raab nearly lost a twenty three thousand majority. Coming back to Southwest Hertfordshire, places like Berkhamstead, or for that matter, Chorley Wood, um, you know, voted quite heavily for me as an independent candidate. Um, and, and I think that's that's the, the challenge for the Conservative Party, is if they want to keep hold of those red wall voters, um, it's going to be quite hard to also keep hold of those, um, you know, London working, educated, middle class um, voters. Uh, uh, but at the moment, I don't think there's a political party that is really making a pitch for those voters. There's nobody who's making a persuasive case to to win those voters. The Labour Party, I think, is still mainly focused on retaining or recovering the red wall. Don't think the Liberal Democrats are really on the stage in the way that they they might be. Um, I think the Greens actually have quite a lot of appeal to to some of these voters. But but I think under more scrutiny, it's it's pretty clear they're a very radical left wing party that don't think um, that well suited to win over vast numbers of formerly conservative voters. Um, so I think there's a sort of bit of a gap there. But the point I was trying to make in the New Statesman article is look, if, if the Labour Party want to go after those voters, there are certain things that they need to do. I mean, if, if I was to sort of summarise it, if they were led by Tony Blair, um, I think they'd be quite well placed. 
Um, not that the main problem is the leadership of the party. I don't think Keir Starmer is the main problem, but you know they, they would need to move much more onto the centre ground and particularly on economics. They'd need to reassure those voters that uh, a Labour government wouldn't end up you know, punishing them economically, jeopardising uh, the stability of the public finances uh, and ensuring that the UK was, was economically competitive. Um, and I think that's that's the, the, the challenge for the Labour Party is if they were to do that, that would be going, moving them to the right economically, which is not really where the Labour Party wants to be. And nor do they really feel that that is the right thing to do because they feel that the, you know, that the economic argument has gone more their way. And, you know, they were right in 2010 all along and you know, austerity is the root of all our problems. Well, you know, they can refight those battles, but I don't think that's going to help them win over those those home counties, disillusioned conservatives. And, and I think that's 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 their difficulty. I wanted to ask you a bit also about the style of um, politicians. We talked quite a lot about the kind of different ideological realignments, etc., um, but without without any evidence for this, my sort of hunch is that the South appeals to relatively or uh, or relatively moderate politicians appeal to the South, moderate in style. So I'm I'm from Surrey, and the the seat that um, my parents are from is Jeremy Hunt's seat, Southwest Surrey, and he sort of strikes me as quite a softly spoken kind of moderate person. Is there anything in my hunch of of if um, that kind of that sort of style of presentation being um, a good one for the South of England. Yeah, I, I, I share your hunch. Uh, I'm not sure I can provide the evidence, but I think that the the politics of and, and again we can use the South of England as, as, as shorthand. You know that there are there are different parts of the South of England and different attitudes in different places. But I think a less aggressive, angry. Uh, confrontational style, a recognition that you know, people of different views can approach these things quite reasonably, um, is something that would appeal. I think it's a bit more grown up and um, you know, recognizing trade offs, and I think a kind of holding, uh, if you like, honesty as a as a more important virtue than perhaps is sometimes the case at the moment. Is part of that. I, I worked very closely and was was heavily involved in Rory Stewart's leadership election campaign, and uh, I think Rory em, em, embodies that that type of politics, and I think would have you know very wide appeal in, in you know in, in many places, particularly in the south, not not exclusively in the south, but particularly there. Um, I think you're right to say that you know the, the Jeremy Hunt style, which is I think much more reasonable and softly spoken. Um, does have an appeal there, and, and and I think the you know our politics has at times come across as a bit more bombastic uh, and um, angry and uh, so on. And I, I I think you know again the voters that I'm talking about and you're talking about don't necessarily always appreciate that. Thanks, David. So should we move on to a uh, little bit more about Labour? So you've. You've written your New Statesman article and you've offered some pieces of advice. So would you mind just sort of setting out what you said in that article? Yeah, I mean, essentially my argument, I mean, the first thing I should, I should say, by the way, is, is um, that the, the advice I was given giving was very much focused on what Labour would need to do if they were pursuing a policy policy. 
of winning the blue wall, if you like, of winning over those voters, that there is a perfectly good argument to say that that is the wrong strategy for the Labour Party. It's too early for it. Um, that if you look at the number of marginal seats still in the red wall that could fall to the Conservatives, you know, maybe maybe there's a lot to be said for shoring up um, that base. And, and there is a question of authenticity as to whether the Labour Party really can transform itself in the, in the way that I, uh, I, I suggest. But having said all of that, uh, I sort of essentially make an argument that they do need to... to you like move on to the centre ground uh, economically, not try to refight the 2010 and 2015 general elections about austerity, um, but you know, demonstrate that they are serious about um, the public finances in the way that Blair and Brown were in 1997, that they are pro-business. Uh, in that context, I think they can they they should say more about the European Union. They don't have to be a full rejoin party, um, but I think they should unashamedly make the case for a closer and more constructive relationship with the European Union. Um, I think there there's something to be said for prioritising climate change because I think that's where public opinion is in in the in these parts of the south of England to have a sort of credible plan uh, on that. I think that they, they they shouldn't be cultural warriors. I don't think they should be uh, overly woke. I think that drives away voters in all parts of the country, and I think they need to be uh, clear about that. But essentially a, a socially liberal uh, party. Uh, and um, as I say, I don't think leadership is their, is their main problem. I think Keir Starmer doesn't frighten the horses in anything like the way that Jeremy Corbyn does. Um, but they probably do need a bit more um, I do, um, uh, flair, if you like, in terms of, of, of trying to appeal to, to, to those voters. And Tony Blair um, w- would have done that very well. Um, so I, I think it's I mean, you, know, you could argue that that's moving the, the Labour Party much more to the sort of centre ground. And I don't underestimate the challenges that it has um, to win over those seats. You know, some of the seats that we are talking about have no real tradition of voting Labour at all, uh, and Labour Party starts a long way behind. But you can make the same point. There are a number of now Conservative Party seats in the north of England that had no real tradition of voting Conservative, and the Conservatives were a long way behind, um, you know, certainly if you went back to sort of 2015, and yet now uh, are, have returned Conservative MPs. So I do think there is that opportunity if we are seeing a realignment in British politics. But you know, it, it, it certainly comes with risks. And it may well be that the Labour Party just doesn't have the desire to win that is the seats that is strong enough. Um, and maybe it just can't do it. And if it can't do it, then it needs to think, you know, how on earth is it going to deprive the Conservative Party of a majority? Because, you know, it seems to me those red wall seats are not going to be easy to get back. Um, if you look at what's happened in um, Scotland, you know, the Labour Party have been almost wiped out there. Um, the Conservative Party, as I was saying earlier, are well placed. I think there is a vulnerability in some of those home county seats. Um, but if the Labour Party can't get there, then you know, do they do something to facilitate the Liberal Democrats getting there? Do they enter into some kind of progressive alliance or what do they do? I think they've got some really big decisions uh, to make. But my, my, my central point is 
I think there is a vulnerability for the Conservative Party amongst the kind of educated, prosperous people of the, the home counties. Um, and and you know, the Labour Party needs to be thinking long and hard about how they exploit that. Thanks. Would you mind if we just went through sort of some of those points in a little bit more detail? So starting with the economy, and you've said about sort of coming back to the centre ground on the economy and having uh, sort of better regard for like taxpayers' money in the way that Brown and Blair did in government. But what is the sort of economic centre ground beyond, as you say, having a bit more regard for value for money? So what are the sort of uh, economic centre ground politics that you think sort of where this is these days? I think I'd go back, and, and uh, the comparison I was drawing was really with with Blair and Brown in opposition in the run up to the nineteen ninety seven general election, and what they did, their economic message was all about reassurance. Um, so whether that was uh, promising to stick to Ken Clark's spending plans, which even Ken wasn't going to do, um, whether it was promising not to put up any of the rates of income tax, including the higher rate. It was all about reassurance. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the, 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 the economic task uh, for the Labour Party, because I think the voters that, that we're talking about don't trust Labour on the economy. They think that they tend to let the public finances run out of control. Um, they tend to think that Labour aren't that interested in um, obtaining value for money. Uh, they th- tend to think that the Labour Party can be quite hostile to business. And, and I think that's what Labour have to do is reassure those voters that that, 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 isn't, that isn't true. Um, and that can be quite a tough task. And I think well, it's, it's even harder at the moment because people are saying, oh, look, you know, austerity was all the problem. Look what look what Biden's doing. You know, they're just spending you know, very happily. This is the era of the big state. You know, we can do all of these things. We don't have to worry about, you know, people start talking about modern monetary theory and we don't have to worry about raising the money. All, all of that, just although although that it might be intellectually in the ascendance at the moment, I think um, scares voters. <laughs> and, um, and so I think reassurance is the most important word when it comes to the economy. And Labour have got to find a way uh, of, of rebuilding trust and reassuring the public, who on individual issues might say, yeah, yeah, we're in favour of this extra spending on this or on that, or, um, yeah, and let's clobber big business on with taxes and so on. Yeah, lots of things that individually the public might like, but collectively they, they, they just hear something which is slightly worrying um, or more than slightly worrying. And, I th- and so I, th- I think when it comes to the economy, I would just say, you know, in a word, it's all about reassurance. You've slightly preempted, I think, what my follow-up question was going to be, because um, if you look at kind of polling, and I haven't got a specific example, but the general trend is that um, people seem quite up for a bit more tax and spend at the moment. So as you alluded to, uh, someone in Labour might say, well, look, public are all up for spending. Why have we got to worry about public finances? But I think you've answered that um, uh, a little bit. Can, can I just come back on that? Yeah. One thing, yeah. I mean, one thing I would be, and, and this, this this does 
favour Labour in a way, although I think the Conservative Party are, are getting there as well. I, I think there is a mood, to, 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 be, to be fair, I think there is a mood for higher levels of public spending uh, and people, I think, are willing to pay more in tax to get that. But what Labour need to do is kind of communicate that in the ways that they're not going to be silly about it. So, so yeah, you know, so, you know, if they come up with a credible plan and say, these are the taxes that we're going to increase and that's it, you know, that, that, you know, we, we've worked this out. This is, this is, this is, this is as far as we, we need to go. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's the, the, the fear is that, you know, for, for, for a lot of these voters, I think is, yeah, of course, you know, Labour just want to put, they just want to put all your taxes up and they'll go, 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 go. And, you know, higher taxes in moderation, I think the public would support. Um, but they've got to kind of, you know, Labour have got to communicate that in a quite a cautious way. Higher spending. Again, I think the public would support, but also a sense of and how we're going to then control that spending. Um, and that, that's that's not easy, but but I think that's where they need to be. So it's a, in summary, it's a moderation thing and a sort of technocratic competence thing as much as it is a, an ideology thing. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, this is a government where, you know, Labour can can win on technocratic competence. You know, they can they can they can be better than the current government on technocratic competence. Doesn't it speak to the sort of political skill of the Conservative Party to have spent 10 odd years implementing austerity and then reinvent themselves as the cure to their um, their own policies and something that other political parties just don't have the political dexterity to be able to um, present, implement a policy, realise the uh, shortcomings of said policy and then present themselves as their, the alternative to their, their past policy. Well, yeah, I, there's, there's something in that. Um, I, I, I mean, I think, in a way, the Conservative Party changed the topic. Um, so... For many years, it was about austerity, the public finances, borrowing and debt and so on. Uh, and then politics became about Brexit. And, and Boris, as in particular, made, made it all about Brexit, get Brexit done. Um, and also he has sort of changed, you know, his approach to the public finances is obviously very different to the approach pursued by David Cameron and George Osborne. So, so I think things have shifted on, and yeah, I think there's polling that suggests that the, the public don't don't really consider Boris Johnson to be a continuation of the previous Conservative governments. And you know, one of the strongest messages in politics is time for a change. Um, but I think you know the clock restarted in 2019, and that that is of huge benefit to the Conservative Party because. You know, normally what we're 11 years uh, in, you know, with, with Conservatives in, in power in one form or the other. And, um, you know, it, it, it still feels at one level like a relatively young government. So that, that is definitely to the Conservatives' um, advantage. Uh, and, and, you know, there's some sort of ruthlessness in that. And I, don't, I think it would be a mistake for the Labour Party to sort of, you know, charge Boris Johnson, yeah, look, you're responsible for austerity and let's fight on austerity, as well as the fact that I think it, you know, it, it might put off people who voted Conservative consistently over that time period. Um, I, I, I also think 
you know, the public don't associate Boris Johnson with that. Okay, so let's move on to culture wars. And you've said, don't be woke. But where where is this sort of centre ground on wokeness and culture wars? The Conservative Party seem to have um, engaged, taken engaging in culture wars as a deliberate part of their sort of strategy. So how could a, let's say, a Labour Party sort of sidestep some of the elephant traps around this and actually, rather than fighting the culture war, seek a sort of centre ground on some of these issues that would allow them to sort of reunify a nation? Yeah, it's it's not a simple task, but I do think that um, there there is a need for a voice out there that, that says that we, we, we must be a liberal and tolerant society. Uh, we've made great progress in recent decades on that, and we must maintain that progress. Um, but, you know, let's also not, you know, let, let's try to avoid some of the things that, you know, looks like silliness, you know, that, that, that you know, some of the uh, um, aspects that we get where, you know, it looks like there are threats to freedom of speech because, you know, you say something wrong and whole careers come to an end, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think the Labour Party has kind of got to be you know, fairly confident in in defining what it thinks is the is 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 the right approach, um, which is about reducing division in society. Um, that you know we we come together as 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 a society that we're perhaps a little less condemnatory uh, of each other, and and we are um, somewhat less confrontational. And if it forces, you know, I mean, you know, on, on some occasions, I, I you know, I, I have some sympathy with things that government ministers might say about some of the excesses uh, of of wokery. But it is quite clear that there is a strategy here to have a you know, a few rows every week about this. I think it does play very well with quite a lot of the electorate. Um, and uh, again, that. Um, yeah, sort of sense that a Labour government provide we, we, you know, some reassurance that the Labour government wouldn't result in lots of people being locked up because they use the wrong terminology or stuff like that. And I think that that um, you know, try and calm the debate down. And um, if that means ultimately sort of exposing the government for trying to pick fights when really there isn't one that is necessary, um, then 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 so be it. But it's it's not territory. Um, that is good, I think, for the Labour Party to be fighting on, and they need to find a way of, of you know, quietly and confidently taking the heat out of some of these issues. So I want to dig into that a bit, because on the surface, perhaps someone who doesn't follow this very closely might think, well, we're saying that the South in particular is culturally liberal, but we're also saying Labour shouldn't go woke, which... You know, when you do one of those surveys about whether you're liberal or authoritarian... Um, that you know, the the more liberal you are, the more kind of woke you are. But so I think we're distinguishing sort of being liberal, say pro same sex marriage, et cetera, et cetera, with something else on the woke side. Um, I guess that's a kind of more extreme ag- aggressive version. So are we, we're saying that the South is kind of live and let live liberal, but not extreme culture warrior. Is that is that is that kind of what we're getting at? Yeah, no, I think that's a good that's a good summary of it. Yeah, no, I think that it that, that's that's exactly right. Um, 
Yeah, and 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 you know, the Labour Party should be a liberal party, um, and and, uh, and and I think it's important that it is. And and to some extent, you know, if we're looking at electoral strategy, it would it would you know it needs to 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 find some dividing lines to bring over those liberal conservatives. So, which is one of the reasons why I think our relationship with the European Union uh, is is a, is an important point, but. But, you know, it, it, it shouldn't, you know, the, the Labour Party shouldn't be defined by its position on you know, transgender rights, for example, which is a you know, complex and difficult and emotive issue. Um, but, but one that, that for quite a large element of the electorate, wherever they are in the country, and including plenty of liberal minded voters, um, looks like a, you know, looks like very much a, a minority issue. Thanks. So two more uh, two more questions on where the centre ground is. So let's start with climate change. You've highlighted climate change. So where is the sort of centre ground that both allows you to uh, bring enough of the public along with you to actually make a difference, but is also doing enough to make as much difference as needs to be made so that you're not just sort of you know, weakly compromising so much in order to get enough people along that you basically don't achieve anything. So uh, where do you think the, um, that centre ground is? Well, I, th- I think climate change is a really interesting issue and it's quite striking that the government uh, up, till, up till now has not wanted to allow that to be a dividing line um, and that their rhetoric on all of this is very ambitious and we're going to hear lots about that with COP26 over the course of this year. I think there is a risk of of the government being guilty of cakeism on all of this. In fact, I think um, Boris Johnson is is quite upfront about his policy on cake and climate change. Um, And I think there is a tension here because if we are going to be serious about net zero by 2050, um, there are going to be quite significant costs involved uh, in meeting that objective. Now, once those costs become apparent, which I think they will do sooner rather than later, I think there will be a clearer divide in politics of those who think that those costs are worth paying and those who think those costs are not worth paying. Um, now, I, I think from a sort of the progressive liberal side, uh, the vast majority on that side will think that those costs are worth paying. Um, whereas I suspect that you know, in uh, it's too early to tell for sure, but I suspect in those red wall seats, uh, the sense will be that the costs aren't worth paying. Now, that's going to be quite difficult for the for the Conservative Party when that becomes apparent, when in, when you can't just have your cake and eat it. And I think, to some extent, the the progressive side of politics needs to perhaps be a little bit more honest with the electorate that there are costs involved, and that will hasten that choice, if you like. And I suspect amongst the voters that we are talking about, most will say this is a cost that we're going to have to pay. And if the Labour Party or a progressive alliance is kind of more credible in identifying what the the issue is, what we need to do about it, how we're going to go about it, accepting there are trade-offs here and there are costs and setting out why it is worth paying those costs, that that will have a more that will be a more credible position 
than a lab- than the government's position, which is it's all going to be marvellous. It's just, you know, what, I tell you what, you know, all our climate change policy means is that we're going to create lots of new jobs making wind turbines in the north of England. That isn't a credible policy. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, there is an opportunity here to be credible with, you know, proper proposals on a, you know, on a carbon tax, proper proposals on maybe carbon border adjustment mechanisms, proper policies on research and development and, you know, what we should be spending on this. And actually quite an ambitious, you know, notwithstanding what I was saying earlier about spending, but I think this is an area where some ambitious spending proposals have something to be said for themselves. That That is an agenda, I think, that is worth pursuing that I think will win over the support of a lot of the middle classes uh, and will have much more credibility than, than what we will get from the government. Have you sort of hit on quite a, um, a key stumbling block or potential stumbling block, which is basically about the sort of distributional effects of all of this? So you said about winning over sort of middle class people, but isn't part of the problem that on climate change a lot of middle class people are signed up and you know basically support the agenda and you know buy organic food and have their lofts insulated and all of this sort of thing but the people who will potentially bear a lot of the brunt and feel to some extent that they're bearing the brunt of both increased bills and a sort of looking down the nose is people who are not so well off and actually that the sort of the hidden aspect of um, a successful centre ground climate change policy is around doing it and at least meeting the costs of it in a more progressive way that sort of deals with that distributional element. Yes, I think you're 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 right to to pick up that point because that you know the the, the reality is that you know, to some extent whether we're talking about carbon taxes or whatever it might be we 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 we're, we're talking about. Um, essentially taxing the consumption of carbon and all other things being equal, it's hard to see how that is not going to be regressive. So part of that credible plan is, is, is how do you, how do you counteract that? How, how do you find a way in which you can do that? That still has the incentives to reduce carbon consumption, uh, but does, does it in a fair way? So that, that is a really big challenge here. Um, uh, and I think this also explains why I think there will be this divide. And this is, you know, this is our, our politics sort of turning on its head, if you like. Um, you know, traditionally, the Conservative Party was you know, the party of the moneyed classes and, and the Labour Party was the party of the poor. You know, I, I think as it becomes clearer that delivering net zero will come with costs, which it will, um, the sort of money's middle classes are much more likely to be relaxed about that than those who are struggling. Um, and, 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 you know, again, that may well feed into the realignment of British politics that we're, we're seeing. Um, but, but, you know, the challenge, and this is, you know, this is a, a policy challenge is how do you, how do you um, compensate the poorest in society for, you know, additional costs on, on consuming carbon? Uh, and that does have to be part of the answer. All right, just two um, two questions from me left. Now, the first one is kind of why we why we exist as a podcast. You said about Brexit, so that Labour should talk about Brexit, but isn't the whole point 
of Brexit is that it was a binary choice. There is no centre ground. Labour picked a side, by and large, picked a side and lost. Tory shires aren't about to fall to Labour because of something that happened now, half a decade ago. Are they? Surely? So where is that sort of centre ground that Labour should tack towards on the, the issue of Brexit? And, sorry, how credible can Labour be in doing that, given that, especially under the leadership of Keir Starmer, it was the, you know, the ignore the referendum and just stay or, um, you know, don't leave party to at least a large extent? Well, I think, first of all, in terms of the the resonance of Brexit, uh, I, I think it still matters. I mean, it, it, it's the thing that I think shifted a lot of Labour voters or former Labour voters into voting Conservative in 2019. I mean, we're, I, I think it's only really in the last year or two that um, Iraq and the Iraq war um, hasn't been a big issue in our politics, hasn't been sort of quite quite significant in our politics. Now, that, that you know, it took a good sort of 15, 16 years for that to cease to be an issue. And, and, and you know, that for for the vast majority of households in this country had much less direct impact than Brexit has. Um, so, so these things can can run on for many many years, and people will still be talking about Brexit. And I think Brexit will colour people's political views for a long time to come. Um, now, you're right. You can say you know we're either in or we're not, but you know Boris Johnson has pursued a particularly hard Brexit. We haven't yet seen the full implications of that, partly because people aren't moving around because of the lockdown. Um, but I think that will become increasingly clear, the, the, the difficulty that that creates for services, some of the challenges for the City of London, uh, for uh, obviously the food, uh, you know, agricultural sectors has, has faced uh, many difficulties. Um, we are in a period of instability because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Things may yet deteriorate further. You know, I think there are a lot of loose ends, a lot of problems that we've got because of the very hard Brexit that has been followed. Now, if we, um, you know, if, if if in response to that, the Labour Party says, right, okay. You know, frankly, the trade and cooperation agreement, it's, it's inadequate. Our relationship with the European Union isn't working. We don't have to rejoin, but there's areas where we can align, where we can have much greater cooperation. Um, I mean, you know, the huge risks come with this, of course. And I come back to this you know, difficulty. How do you hold on to the, you know, where do you go with the red wall? seats if you want to win over those blue wall seats but you know frankly the trading cooperation agreement isn't working um it would be in this country's interest to have a closer relationship with the european union that is likely to become more apparent over time and if the labor party without being a full rejoin party but by positioning itself as saying come on you know we've got to have a constructive relationship with the european union we've got to be prepared to find some areas of cooperation um this isn't working for the british people in all sorts of ways if they're prepared to take that argument on then i think you know that 48 percent that voted uh remain uh 
followed by all those people who have turned 18 since 2016, uh, the vast majority of whom um, polling suggests would also have voted Remain. You know, there, 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 is, there is an audience for that message. Uh, and I think, you know, I think they, if, if they want to go after those blue wall seats, um, they, they have to be prepared to fight on, on, on the relationship with Europe. So final Labour question from me is whether you think Labour actually wants to win power or whether Labour is essentially very happy as a party, though I very much include the membership, not just the parliamentary Labour Party, but whether the Labour Party is actually quite happy being a kind of crap sort of soft left protest movement. The Conservative Party exists to hold office... The Labour Party's torn, I think, between strands that really want to hold office, wouldn't mind holding office from time to time as long as it doesn't have to make too many compromises or sort of um, feel too bad about itself, and a section of the party that would be absolutely delighted for someone else to hold office and for them to shout from the sidelines. So do you think the Labour Party actually wants to be in power? Well, I think Martin, you put it you put it very well, and, and look, there, there are there are plenty of Labour MPs I know who are desperate to be in office. They don't like opposition. They they hate the the, the, the impotence that comes with that. Um, but my sense from the outside is, you know, quite a lot of the Labour Party um, is perfectly happy to shout and complain and you know, bemoan their lot. Uh, and rage at the wicked Tories, um, and they'd much rather do that than get their hands dirty and you know, make difficult decisions. And I mean, I, it, I just find it extraordinary that you know when the Labour Party. I mean, the polling has started to move now, but you know, generally in recent years, when you ask Labour members of you know which of their leaders they've liked most and they've liked least, you know, they've they've had Jeremy Corbyn high up there, who was completely unelectable and ill-suited to holding any kind of public office, in my view. Um, and Tony Blair, who was electorally the most successful Prime Minister um, the Labour Party has ever had by a country mile, is right at the bottom. Um, and, you know, that does strike me that, that you know, Labour really aren't that interested in in, in winning power. And, um, you know, there's quite a lot of gesture protest politics uh, behind the Labour Party, um, which partly explains why historically the Labour Party is usually in opposition and why the Conservative Party is usually in government. So, David, you very kindly walked us through, blow by blow, your um, advice to Labour in the New Statesman article. Um, but I wanted to finish uh, zooming out a little bit and thinking back about the kind of broader strategic question. So I guess for Labour and the Conservatives, is this a zero-sum game when it comes to appealing to the North and the South? Or is there a sort of sweet spot that either of them could fit into? Um, and I asked that question without really having an indication of whether there is a, a right answer or not. Yeah, I, I think whether it's quite a zero-sum game... But I think there are certain consequences um, if you switch your politics, if you like, towards the cultural rather than the economic. And you know, at the moment, the Conservative Party has found a sweet spot because it's been able to win over cultural conservatives in the north, but it's retained 
if you like, economic conservatives in the South, partly because a fear of Corbyn in 2019 was very strong. Um, and so they have found a, a, a sweet spot. But I think as time goes on, demographic changes, et cetera, et cetera, I think that will become increasingly, and, and the choices that governments have to make, it becomes increasingly hard for um, the Conservatives to keep hold of everybody. But, you know, I, I, I've sort of outlined a strategy in this new statesman piece, but, you know, as, as I hope I was clear in the article and, and um, clear today, you know, some of the approaches, some of the policies that I suggest uh, we're going down really badly in the Red Wall. Um, you know, talking much more about Brexit and being prepared to pay the price of fighting climate change and, uh, you know, making the case of public spending constraint up to a point, um, but, you know, reassurance that the Labour Party is pro-business and, uh, you know, not hostile to inward investment and... Uh, you know, in favour of reducing trade barriers, all, all of those things are, are not not designed, frankly, to win back Hartlepool. Um, and I, I'm not sure that you know any of those policies will necessarily be hugely popular in Hartlepool. But I think they might win quite a few votes in Hertfordshire. Now, you, know, you can look at an electoral map, and it's still still really hard to see where the you know the numbers of seats are. Um, that could go Labour in that way. But, you know, you only have to go back to early autumn 2019 and it was quite hard to see how many red wall seats the Conservative Party would gain and things are moving quite quickly and quite fast. But it, it just might be that it's it, it's beyond the Labour Party, both their desire and their ability to pursue this particular strategy because to some extent it is a, a zero-sum game. And, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a Labour MP sitting in a, a red wall seat, you know, whether you're Yvette Cooper or Ed Miliband, um, you'd look at the strategy I've just set out and go, hmm, I think this might be a very good way of losing my seat. And, and they may well be right. And, and that just shows what a difficult electoral position the Labour Party finds itself in. I mean, yeah, that's rather well summed up. I mean... This, again, might be speculation, but I've noticed that the Conservative MPs in those northern seats, having just won them, seem to be acting almost as a little subgroup. And I wonder if we'd find something, if Labour or any other party was to make in the South, we might find they have their own kind of subgroup who make slightly different noises um, in the new music to appeal to their particular seats than, um, than other MPs. Yeah, I mean, yes, whether a subgroup or, or you come back to this sort of progressive alliance idea, you know, is there a, is there a kind of, um, you know, a multi-party approach? And, and, and again, this could, could be the role that the Liberal Democrats play. It could be a role for, a, you know, for, a, for a, a new centrist party that is, you know, designed to represent the, the voters that we've, 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 we've talked about. Um, I mean, I, th- I think these are the things that presumably the Labour Party are, are trying to wrestle with as to as to where they go. You know, increased talk about progressive alliances and uh, and and so on. But um, yeah, we do have to remember that. You know, certainly my experience in twenty nineteen, a lot of voters um, are still sort of asking themselves who is going to be prime minister at the end of this, and they look at the leader of the Labour Party and they look at the leader of the Conservative Party, and, and yeah, that's. That's whatever, you know, whatever structure, whatever answer uh, we might end up with. Um, that's that's you know, that's a really important question. 
I think that's been a really interesting uh, hour or so. So I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of walk us uh, through what you'd previously said and some of your, your insights. And I think there's one thing that I've sort of come back to throughout um, throughout this and referring to the Red Wall and something that I'm increasingly, uh, increasingly believing with regard to politics, which is that something is completely impossible until it happens. All of the idea that um, the Hartley Pools, the Blythe Valleys, you know, all of these places that have been Labour since the creation would ever go Conservative was obviously completely impossible. Don't be ridiculous. And now, of course, it's happened. So it's entirely possible that some of the things that we talk about, which seem far-fetched, end up in a couple of years' time being... Well, of course, it, it was inevitable when you look back from this standpoint, which, of course benefit of hindsight is something denied to us all in real time but um thank you again david for taking the time to to talk to us that's been very good of you it's a real pleasure thank you very much thank you and steve as always my partner in crime thank you very much thanks martin and thank you david really enjoyed that finally to our listeners thank you very much for listening i hope you found this uh interesting and educational like we certainly have and uh, thank you for listening and goodbye <laughs>